again for your truth, for your word. Uh, Father, for the history, for the fact uh, of what these men uh, did in obedience to you and in following uh, your call on their life. Uh, Lord, I pray tonight that we would learn uh, from Zephaniah that his message would be as, as, uh, as loud and clear today as it was so many years ago as he preached uh, throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judah. So, Father, speak to us tonight. May your Holy Spirit come and rest upon this place, and uh, we will give you the praise and the glory uh, for what you do here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Zephaniah, we have two more weeks. This, tonight, next week, and then we're done until February, uh, until after the Super Bowl. We'll go right up to Thanksgiving. So we have Zephaniah tonight. We have Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce it. Um, next week, and uh, that gets us right up to the prophets prior to Judah going into captivity. Um, and so that was kind of a natural break, so that's where we decided to break it. Um, tonight, Zephaniah and the Reformation, <coughs> again, we want to look at kind of the outline, the man, the date, the message, um, any historical background that, that uh, will be helpful to know. And uh, tonight is, I think, uh, uh, has a lot of really uh, important, I think we can look at, uh, at our own nation as we look at where Judah was uh, as Zephaniah came on the scene. So the man, the name Zephaniah, it means the Lord has hidden. Uh, the Lord has hidden or the Lord is hidden. Uh, and following the, the death of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah was killed, martyred, uh, by King Manasseh. Uh, King Manasseh, we're going to look at uh, his reign here in a little bit. Uh, but King Manasseh was not a good king of Judah. Remember, we said there are no good kings in Israel. None of them followed after the Lord. Occasionally, you got one from Judah. Uh, Manasseh was not one of those good kings. Uh, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, did not uh, do what was right. Um, and so after Isaiah, if you look at the timeline, after Isaiah... The Lord did not send a prophet to the southern kingdom for many years, uh, 50 or so years. There was no prophet in Judah in the southern kingdom until Zephaniah came on the, on the scene. Um, and so Zephaniah is the Lord has hidden. Uh, he's become silent. Um, and so we're told uh, in these, the first, uh, first verses that Zephaniah, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Uh, we see that he is the son of Hezekiah, or the, I think he's actually the great-grandson, if you count the generations back. But he is in the, in the line of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, this, if this is truly King Hezekiah, which I would think it was, because if you notice most of the prophets, we might have gotten their father's name, but we got nothing else. You know, the, and sometimes we didn't even get the father's name in some of these minor prophets. This, this one goes so far as to say four generations back to Hezekiah, which makes me believe that it is King Hezekiah. And so that would mean that Zephaniah has a royal bloodline. Uh, and that's important uh, because the, that family, his descendants, would have significance in Jerusalem. Uh, Isaiah was also of royal bloodline. And so Isaiah is killed. The next prophet that comes through is Zephaniah. 
Uh, his home, where, do, where did he live? Uh, we're not really told specifically where it was, but we can believe that he lived in Jerusalem, uh, partially because of the royal descent. The royal family would probably have lived in Jerusalem, probably not have moved out or moved very far from there. Uh, also in, in uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 4, I will stretch out, God is saying, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests. Uh, and so here he is speaking of Jerusalem in this place. So whether he lived in Jerusalem or not, we're pretty sure at this point he's in Jerusalem because he refers to the area as this place where I am right now. Um, and then in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it says, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. Familiar with... Uh, <laughs> I quoted you my notes on there, too. They were supposed to get separated from the verse. Um, this, this verse, 10 and 11, would show that he was very familiar with the area of Jerusalem, uh, able to say the fish gate, the new quarter, uh, knowing that all of the, what he's mentioning there is the north side of Jerusalem. And so what he's warning them of is that there is something coming from the north. We know that to be uh, Assyria is from the north, um, although Judah would eventually uh, be conquered by Babylonians who would come in from the north. So uh, he's very familiar with Jerusalem. He calls it this place, so he's, he's uh, definitely there uh, at this time. If you look at the map, and uh, it, it doesn't copy real well on white paper, it probably copies even less well on salmon-colored paper, so it might be a little tough to read. But if you see, it's a, it's a map of the Assyrian Empire, and all of that dark shaded, the very darkest uh, shade of gray are the seas, the Black Sea, Mediterranean Sea, Persian Gulf, Red Sea, and Caspian Sea. And then that next shade is the Assyrian Empire. This is their, I mean, they, they kind of ruled the known world at this time. They, they stretched uh, quite, a, quite a ways into to Egypt, down the Nile River. Uh, remember we talked about them overthrowing Thebes. Uh, that would have been somewhere down there on the Nile. Um, and then you can also see they did put the modern-day uh, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Israel, Syria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. So you kind of get an idea of where that's at geographically today. Um, so they covered a lot of land. I mean, they, they, they ruled uh, a, a vast empire. You can see Nineveh there right near the middle. Uh, just north of the middle in Babylon, just uh, south of the middle, Babylon and Nineveh, two cities, but did not necessarily get along. They were within the Assyrian Empire, but eventually the, the Medo-Persians, which would be uh, a little farther uh, east of Iran, would come in, rule Babylon, and then eventually overthrow Nineveh, which is what we learned about last week uh, with... Uh, it just slipped my mind. Uh, Nahum. Uh, Nahum, remember he prophesied Jonah had gone in 100 years later, 120 years later, Nahum had gone into Nineveh. Nineveh was about to be overthrown by the Medo-Persians and, uh, and Babylon. So they were coming in and driving Nineveh out. So at this point, this is the Assyrian Empire 
in Zephaniah's day. Uh, now, the date of this book, of, of the time when Zephaniah would be prophesying, we put it about 630 B.C. is about when that is. This is prior to King Josiah. It is uh, kind of overlaps Manasseh's, the end of Manasseh's reign and the beginning of Josiah's uh, reign, and Ammon is in the middle there, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, so at the beginning of King Josiah's Reformation, and what I want to talk about just real quickly is the reign of Manasseh, uh, because Manasseh is, is, a, is a key player in Judah at this time. Uh, he is the king. Um, you can read about him in 2 Kings 21, and 2 Chronicles 33 talks about Manasseh. He is the son of Hezekiah. Uh, so uh, Hezekiah was a good king, uh, a very good king, but his son would not follow his example. Manasseh was not a good king. Uh, in fact, he invented ways to do evil. Uh, he invented ways to uh, uh, disobey God. He ruled for 55 years. It was the longest reign of any king, north or south kingdom. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, he reigned for 55 years. The first 10 years, and this is kind of the amazing part that he was, uh, that, that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, is that the, for the first 10 years of his reign, he co-reigned with his father. Uh, the two of them reigned together. And yet, even because he was so young, I think he was 12 uh, at the beginning of that. So from 12 to 22, he was r ruling alongside his dad, Hezekiah, the good king. Um, and so everything his father did that was good, Hezekiah set out to undo. Complete reversal. When Hezekiah would tear down uh, the, the, the Baal worship and the, the Asher poles, and, and he did all that setting up uh, the temple and, and, and uh, worship of God, Hezekiah would begin tearing it all down. He tore down God and built up all of the foreign gods. And so Hezekiah was the exact opposite of a good king. Some things that were going on politically, what was happening in the rest of the world, uh, in Babylon... We said that was kind of that southern city in the Assyrian Empire, Babylon, Nineveh, the two big, uh, big cities of the Assyrian Empire. Babylon was strong during Hezekiah's reign, uh, but had fallen on hard times. And so Babylon was not much of a threat. And because they weren't much of a threat, Manasseh became an ally with them. He just made, made friends with the Babylonians. And so that they would, they, would, they would be able to trade back and forth. They would help one another out. They, they were on good terms. Um, that's not always healthy. Oh, good question. Uh, no, it would be later. It would be after, uh, yeah, it would be later after Zephaniah. Um, when, when Persia came into control and overthrew the Assyrians, then Nebuchadnezzar would be in, be in charge. At this point, Nineveh is, still, Nineveh is still in charge at this point, but Babylon is going to be rising in power um, as, as we move along uh, through here. Um, and so Babylon, not much of a threat. 
Manasseh decides he's going to become an ally, going to become friends uh, with the Babylonians. Uh, and as I said, that's not always a good thing. Um, what's going on in Egypt? Egypt is in the southwest corner of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Assyria, as we said, had attacked Egypt, forced the Pharaoh to run. Uh, as, as Assyria came in, the Pharaoh ran out. Um, Egypt then did rebel, and uh, the new king of Assyria attacked Egypt, and that's when they overthrew the city of Thebes, which is what we talked about last week uh, with Nahum. Um, and so Egypt really is not on solid, is not on solid ground either. Uh, I have a little girl that comes in and waves at me uh, every week when they're heading to their small group. So uh, I always have to wave back or she'll stand there and wave until I do. Uh, love her to death. Uh, and so Egypt is not a real big threat politically at this point. Um, again, they're part of Assyria now. Egypt is on the run. They're weakened. Um, so they're not going to be a big threat. Um, what's happening in Assyria? They had weakened both Babylon and Egypt, which would be the, the, the powers of that, that area, that time, um, in their world conquest. And so Manasseh now is making an alliance with, knows that making the alliance and really strengthening the alliance with Babylon to the east and Egypt to the south is really useless because they're not in power. And so he says, I want to be friends with the guy in power. And so he sets out uh, paying tribute to the Assyrian rulers. And basically what that is saying is we still have our own rule, but we'll do whatever you tell us to do. Uh, and so he is making friends with the Assyrians. Seeing what they have done to the northern kingdom, he says, my best bet is to just buddy up next to them. And then they won't come in and run me out. I'll just continue to pay this tribute, whatever it is, whatever sum of money or goods or people. Sometimes it was come in and take, you know, we've got this project, we need your men. And so they would come in and they would basically take the, uh, the Jews, the Hebrews, as slaves into Assyria to build this city or do whatever. And Manasseh was fine with that. So long as you don't come in and bust up my kingdom, I'm cool. Uh, and so... Uh, Manasseh paid tribute to Assyria, which was kind of that tax or that ransom, uh, just so that they would not be destroyed. Um, that's just a dangerous thing. Uh, when, you're, when you're buddying up with the one in power, uh, you're not really concerned about what they're doing, what they stand for, who they are, where they're going. Um, you're just trying to selfishly save your own skin, uh, is what Manasseh was doing. And so for 55 years, let's just say 45 years, because the first 10 he served with his dad, but from the last 45 years, this is, this is the climate, okay? God is not seen anywhere. He's doing everything he can to remove God from the culture, from the society, bringing in Babylonians, Egyptian and Assyrian gods so that they can blend in with the, the world power of that time. Removing God from the culture. Dangerous place to be. Uh, that's where they are politically. Politically, removing God. Okay? Religiously, and I get this from Dr. David Denyer. I told you that uh, I, I, uh, Bill Opperman, it's his father-in-law, Donna's dad, uh, archaeologist has done digs in Israel several times 
uh, phenomenal man, phenomenal knowledge, especially in the history of Old Testament. Um, and so I've pulled a lot of the, the material I'm giving you from him. Uh, tonight, this comes straight from him. Um, religiously, there were three things going on. Uh, syncretism, uh, and I gave you that word, didn't give it to you in a blank because I want to have to spell it for you. Um, the worship of gods other than your own. That's what syncretism means, okay? So each nation had its own God, and Israel's was Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim. That was their God. Syncretism is when you begin bringing in all of the other gods of the neighboring nations, and this is what Manasseh was doing, uh, and Manasseh worshipped many of them. You could probably walk into uh, to Manasseh's palace, and there would be gods all lined up. Uh, he was covering all of his bases. Look at, uh, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, to kind of give you a, an idea. Uh, we'll start reading with verse 1. I'll see how I might go beyond 7. Um, this is what Manasseh was about. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Uh, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Okay, so and we're going all the way back now to Joshua. With, with this, when, when they came in to, to take the land of Canaan that was promised to them, uh, God, under the leadership of uh, through the leadership of Joshua, uh, drove out many of these nations. And the nations then would be scattered to Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and all the, the neighboring uh, lands. And was told, you will have no other gods before me. You know, this was chosen. This was the holy land. This is where you are to be. Um, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations, all of them. Uh, he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. Okay, he just got put into Ahab. Ahab's not the guy you want to be compared to. Um, the only king more evil than Ahab, Manasseh. Uh, he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. He put all the other gods' names. In both courts of the temple of the, the Lord, he built altars to all the starry host. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Okay, he took his own child as a, burning, as a burnt sacrifice on the altar, killed his own son. Practiced sorcery and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I give their forefathers. I only if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. Okay? I will not, again, verse 8, make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their forefathers unless you do what Manasseh is now doing. Unless you open it up to all the other gods and you do not keep me first and foremost, 
and you do not worship me and me only, then I will drive you out and you will wander again. And we see that coming, do we not? We know from history that that's exactly what happened. Babylon came in and took them captive. Uh, And for 70 or so years, they were in captivity as slaves in Babylon. And so uh, (coughs) Manasseh is really kind of the cause for what's about to to take place over the next several years in Judah. Uh, And so syncretism, here he he revived temple prostitution. He set a new high and an all-time low. Uh, This this became a very normal thing throughout the land, uh, temple prostitution. Uh, The gods of Canaan and Assyria were worshipped openly. He worshipped the stars, the sun, the moon, uh, and other things, trying to force his people to do the same. So he was setting up these, these places of worship throughout the land that, that worshiped the starry host, worshiped sun worship, moon worship, star worship, uh, all of the gods that, that came in from Canaan, all the, the Canaanite gods, the Assyrian gods. He brought them all in. Uh, children's sacrifice. I can't, I can't believe that the king's son was the only one that was ever sacrificed. I think it was a normal part of of their worship. Uh, this is where Manasseh had gone 10 years with his father who did right in the eyes of the Lord and in one generation completely turned it around, completely flipped it around, um, continued. And yet in the midst of all that, he continued to worship Yahweh. He continued to worship Jehovah in the midst of all that. So I'm worshiping this God, this God, this God. On the Sabbath, I'm going to worship Jehovah because what we do. We're Israel, or we're, we're Judah. And so we, we worship Jeho- Jehovah, but he's throwing in all of the others, all of the other gods with him. Um, he basically, his religious life and what he was bringing into to Judah at this point was worshiping everything that could be worshiped. Okay? Anything that could be worshipped, he was worshipping. He was setting up idols for it. He was, he was promoting it. He was getting people to, to move. So there was, a, there was a spirituality within him. We hear that a lot today. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That scares me for this reason right here. Um, because what is it that you're spiritual about? And it could be anything and everything, and usually it is. Um, and so uh, Yahweh had said, I will have no rivals. He said in the, in the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and what Manasseh did was he just lined them all up beside him. I have Jehovah, and I have Baal, and I have Asherah, and I have the sun god, and the moon god, and the star god, and the water god, and the tree god. And the, he was just lining them all up. And he said, we'll just cover all our bases. Yeah, and we'll see that in a little bit. Um, that, that there was still that element. Yahweh was still in there. He still had that, that element uh, in there. So syncretism, bringing in all of the other gods with him. And then uh, second thing is persecution of the prophets. Uh, he began persecuting the prophets uh, of Jehovah. 
Second Kings 21:16. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, that that understanding of so much innocent blood is understood to be the blood of the prophets uh, that that were preaching Jehovah and Jehovah alone. Um, Prophets tended to be at this time captured and executed on the spot. Um, if you were caught preaching or speaking on behalf of, of Yahweh, or Jehovah, you were killed. Uh, not a whole lot of question asked. Um, in fact, that's how Isaiah died. Uh, he, he killed Isaiah that way. Um, <coughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 38. Um, let's just turn there. Hebrews 11, the, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. That, uh, that being sawed in two, uh, history tells us, make, leads us to believe that that's how Manasseh had Isaiah killed. Uh, what they would do is they would put the person alive in a hollow log and then saw the log in half. So the person could not move. He was trapped inside the log and they just cut the log in half. And that's not with a quick <laughs> chainsaw either. Um, you know, they're until it gets all the way through. Um, not the way you want to go. Uh, but but uh, history would, would lead us to believe that was uh, how Isaiah uh, was killed, being placed in a hollow log and sawed in two. Uh, so Zephaniah, the Lord is hidden. Okay, After Isaiah, for half a century, God did not send another prophet. Uh, so for almost 50 years, God is silent in this. Uh, and <clears throat> what we have then, thirdly, is a belated repentance. Uh, Manasseh, for all of his horribleness, Second Chronicles 33, we see that he did turn from his wicked ways. Chapter uh, 33, Second Chronicles 33:10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Okay, so in all of his wanting to befriend and protect his own skin, uh, because of his disobedience to God and his uh, slapping God in the face, spitting at him uh, constantly, uh, God moved 
the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria. So Assyria is now coming down into Judah. Took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Okay, this is a good ending to, to a horrible life. Here's Manasseh who did everything he could to turn Judah away from God. But God has now acted upon that and and taken Manasseh captive to Babylon. Assyria has come in, captured him, drug him by the nose, hook in the nose. um, And that is just what it says it is. They put a hook in his nose because you're not going to fight against that because it hurts like crazy. And put him in shackles and they could lead him all the way to Babylon. And it was while he's there that God got a hold of him. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. That word knew is yada. He now had a relation. Remember the yada, 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 yada means knowledge, but it also means the intimacy between a man and a, and a or husband and a wife that Adam knew Eve, and we are to know God. We have that intimate relationship. And here Manasseh now, after all of these years of fighting God, of going against God, of being disobedient, of setting all the other gods up before him, is brought to his knees and repents and seeks God out. And God hears him. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. After he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel, he also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods, removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord to sacrifice fellowship and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. He turned the nation back to Jehovah. Um, The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God has moved was moved by his entreaty as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself. All are written in the record of the seers. Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. So he humbled himself before God. Micah chapter 6, remember we learned from Micah, yeah, Bill. Mm-hmm. Right, it's an incredible testimony of God's grace and mercy and God's love for Israel. We talked about him being a jealous God. He did not want this for his people. And so this leader comes in, turns Israel away from God, away from Jehovah, 
And so he goes hidden, silent. God falls silent for a while. And then he comes back, leads this man out, causes great distress, just turns his heart, calls him out. And he comes back and then begins to right all of the wrongs that he had done. Um, And so even in the midst of all of that, there was still that inkling. God was still working in the midst of what seemed like no way. He was buried so deep. But God, even though he was hidden, even though he was silent, he was still working. He was still moving. He was still in control. Uh, He just didn't speak through man, through the prophets anymore. He was doing all of his uh, things unbeknownst to men. Um, So Micah says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And that's what Manasseh did. That's how he ended his life, uh, walking humbly with his God. He failed to in... uh, in whatever time he had, however, he failed to influence his son. He, he killed his one. We don't know which son he sacrificed, whether it was his firstborn or what. But he, probably his firstborn, that would usually be the one that you would sacrifice. So we're going to say he sacrificed his firstborn. Ammon was his second son. And in whatever time he had left at the end of his life, after he came in to reform Israel... He did not influence his son. And Ammon would then become king. Now, Ammon, you can, if you go on to read in 2 Chronicles uh, 33, uh, he only reigned for two years and then was assassinated by his own people. Okay, so probably not a real good king. And uh, definitely not a godly king, did not follow after God. Uh, interestingly enough, this is how far Manasseh had gone, that he named his son Ammon, after an Egyptian god. Ammon is the name of one of the high gods of Egypt. And so he was naming his son after these gods uh, coming in, uh, that he was bringing in. So Ammon, uh, assassinated by his own people, the assassins were found guilty and put to death, and uh, which opened the way for the next king, who would be Josiah. Uh, Josiah was uh, probably the best king since David. Uh, so here... God is silent for, I don't know how many years, 40 years, let's say, that he is hidden. And, and Manasseh doing horrible things throughout the, the, throughout the country of Judah. And God comes back in, in a love for his people and, and in a jealousy for his people to, to be right and to be protected, drags Manasseh off and, and reveals himself some way, somehow, through that distress. Manasseh answers with humility praise to God, God brings Manasseh back and Manasseh begins to restore Judah in that. Ammon then uh, doesn't mess things up very long. I mean, he's trying to do things, but two years didn't really have a whole lot of time to to really screw things up. And so uh, then Josiah comes in and Josiah, with the help of Zephaniah, because Zephaniah comes on about the same time Josiah comes on on the scene would bring political and religious reforms back to Judah and begin to reestablish God's way, God's culture in the country. Um, And so, uh, once again, prophet and king are working together to lead the nation. 
Um, and that didn't happen in, in Judah very often. It didn't happen in Israel at all. Um, and it hadn't happened for many years uh, since Hezekiah. And so here's the message of, of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is here to break the silence. Zephaniah comes on the scene. God is no longer hidden. God is speaking. God is active. God is, is involved uh, in Judah through Josiah and through Zephaniah. He has two themes, um, and they're a common theme of the prophets. This isn't going to surprise anyone. Uh, the very first one is imminent judgment. Okay, judgment is coming. Uh, we read in, in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, uh, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth. What does that sound like to you? Does that ring a bell to anything that's happened in history? Noah, the flood. That's exactly what God said when he was going to, when he destroyed the, the earth with the flood. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, So the Lord said, I will wipe away from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Again, we have this idea of universality, both of, of salvation and judgment, uh, that God wants all to be saved, um, and, and yet those that don't believe will all be judged. I mean, there's going to come that time. There, I said before, there's only two types of people, believers and unbelievers. Those are the only two types of people that exist. And there's going to come a time when salvation is made complete for the believer and judgment will be made complete for the unbeliever. Um, and until that time, we are trying to bring the unbeliever into a relationship with God um, and see their conversion. Uh, but there's going to come a day, Zephaniah says, when the whole world is going to be judged. And that day is still yet future. We're still looking in, the, in our future uh, that there's a day coming. Second thing is that there's the, the judging of Judah, that there is an imminent judge, uh, judgment falling upon Judah, verses, verse 4 through chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, Zephaniah is now speaking to his own people and his own city. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation. Uh, here Judah had, had now become a shameful nation. Under Hezekiah, even in the midst of reforms, they still weren't back where they needed to be. There was still a, a shamefulness uh, within them. And he calls them a shameful nation. And uh, this is a hundred years after Israel was, was, after Israel was taken in, after the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. We're now a hundred years, and Judah is becoming a shameful nation if they don't completely turn. From, from where Manasseh had led them, Manasseh started the turn, was not here very long in that. Ammon tried to turn them back, and now Josiah is trying to reform them once again. And, and the warning is, if you don't, you will continue in this shameful shameful way and be a part. Um, and so Judah, the nation uh, that was protected by God for so many years, was about to be the object of his wrath uh, if they did not complete the turn, if they did not continue in this, this reformation. Uh, they were going to be the object of the wrath. Not just Judah. We have C as Judah's neighbors. Chapter 2, verse 4, Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. Uh, Ekron uh, Kirithite people, Canaan land of the Philistines, I will destroy you, none will be left. 
uh, and he just goes on and he lists several uh, of the, the nations to the west. Uh, Philistia, the Philistines were there. Um, in the east, Moab and, and Ammon were there. To the south, the Ethiopians, the Cushites. Um, <clears throat> that word Cushite, chapter 2, verse 12. It says, you too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. Um, the Cushites come from Cush. Anyone know who Cush was? Name's kind of familiar. It's starting to ring a little bell in there. Cush was the firstborn son of Ham, who was the son of Noah. Okay, so Ham the son of Noah, his firstborn son was Cush. And so here we have the Cushites, or one of these uh, neighboring uh, nations. Ham was the one that was cursed by God following the flood. Because if you remember, the other, his two brothers, they walked in, and, and Noah did a little celebrating after they got off the, you know, you, you can't blame him really. I mean, he was in that ark for a long time. I'm not trying to justify what he did, but he got drunk. Uh, planted vineyards. Apparently, it was good, good grapes, produced great wine, um, and he got a little too much one night, got drunk, laying in his bed, and apparently when he laid down, revealed his nakedness, um, however he was laying there. Ham walked in and saw that and came back and apparently mockingly told the other, his two brothers. And the two brothers decided, well, we, out of honor for our father, we're going to go in and cover him up. And so they went in and they walked in backwards so as not to see him in his state of undress and covered him up. Because of that discretion on Ham's part and not honoring his father uh, to, cover, to cover him up, Ham was cursed. Um, and Ham then was, uh, was kicked out um, and sent on his way. Genesis chapter 9 Chapter 9, verse 22 says, uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness, told his two brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward, covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Okay, so Cush is the, Cush's firstborn was Canaan. So Ham father of the Cushites, Cush, father of the Canaanites. Uh, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Uh, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, uh, and may God extend the territory of Japheth. So while Japheth and Shem were blessed, Ham was cursed for that indiscretion uh, there. And uh, you can read a little later in chapter 10, verse 8, that Cush was the father of Nimrod, uh, Nimrod was a mighty hunter, uh, and Nimrod, we find, if you read on, settled in Babylon and Assyria, and Nimrod is the one who built the city of Nineveh. Okay, so we're coming all full circle here. We're bringing this all back in together. Ham, Shem, Japheth, what happened with Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth has a very key part in what is happening now thousands of years later with the Cushites and the, and, and, uh, the Jews in, in Judah, the Israelites in Babylon and all of that. It's all taking apart, um, and we can see it all begin to, to unfold. 
uh, with that. And then in the north, uh, Judah's neighbors, Assyria, uh, chapter 2, verses 15, um, Assyria also is going to be destroyed. Uh, He says in verse 15, this is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am and there is none besides me. How important is that word I am? Big time important. That's God's first name, I am. When Moses said, who should I say sent me? I am sent you. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Nineveh said, I am. There is none besides me. Nineveh had set themselves up higher than Jehovah. And anyone that does that is going to get knocked down. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. That was going to be the outcome of Assyria. But Jerusalem was also, if they did not turn, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Now, again, these are all, yeah. Well, the land of the Canaanites is where Jerusalem is. Joshua went into the land of Canaan. That was the land that was given to Abraham. So they're going to be all around there. Because so few ever, they never drove them all completely out. They still lived amongst Israel. Um, It's good land. Who wouldn't want to live there? Um, And so the Canaanites still were there. Um, Now Cush, Nimrod and all, they would have moved out farther and are right now the Babylonians and the Assyrians um, who they're doing battle with. But there would still be Cushites, Canaanites in the land uh, of Judah. You mean for... He wasn't given it. He just still lived there. It was still Judah's land. Judah was given the land of Canaan. Oh, yeah. Um, the, curse, the curse would be that they would be servants to his other two brothers. Um, that, that he would be, he would be cursed and be their, their servant, which in fact is what they became. As Joshua went in and drove Canaan out, they took over the land. And cursed be, Cain, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. That was the curse. And so while they, yeah, they lived in that land, eventually they would become uh, under the rule of, of, of Judah uh, and Jerusalem. None. No. No. So, uh, Jerusalem was also, chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials, roaring lions, rulers, evening wolves, who leave nothing for the morning. Now, here Manasseh, Manasseh had a conversion experience. But he came back, and while he's tearing things down, his rulers are still pretty much operating the way they were operating before. Uh, It's not like the entire nation came back under God. Manasseh did, 
And Manasseh, for the rest of his life, began tearing those things down, trying to build God back up uh, and build Jerusalem back up to worshiping God. Um, but there were still those rulers within the city that did not believe in Jehovah, that were still following all the other gods. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. Every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have cut off nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No one at all. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they, they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I, will, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. And again, this not only points to uh, eventual fall of Judah, but it points to the second coming of Christ when he will call all the nations back together for that final judgment uh, with that. Okay, so, uh, and then we have the ultimate, uh, again, we said two themes in his, in his message. One is imminent judgment. It's coming. If you don't turn, God's wrath is the consequence of not turning uh, back to God. Um, the second is ultimate restoration. That, that's, a, that's a typical uh, theme of the prophets because God still restores. That's God's desire still is that no one would perish but all come to a saving knowledge. Um, and live by faith. And so uh, chapter 3, verse 8 and 20, uh, 8 through 20, the rest, of, the rest of the chapter, he talks about this, this restoration. Um, most prophets point to a day when Israel, God's people, will be restored. Um, God's punishment now is for the purpose of bringing restoration, not destruction. Um, all the punishments that Israel has been facing right now has been for the, the sole purpose of bringing them back to God, not destroying them. That's coming. There is a final destruction. There is a final judgment. Um, and we know that when, when Christ returns, that's going to happen. But all of the destruction, all of the punishment up to this point has just been simply out of the love for God to call his people back to give them the opportunity to see and, and to follow again, to repent and come back to know him. And so, ultimately, God's punishment leads to or is designed to lead to restoration. Um, and so, uh, discipline is for the good of the person. I mean, we, we know that with our kids as a parent. You know, we discipline. God even said, those whom I love, I discipline. I direct. Sometimes that, that means punishment. Sometimes that, that means harsh punishment, depending on the crime. Uh, and so, uh, you know, God is saying, I, I'm doing this. All, of this. all of this judgment is coming, not because I'm a, a nasty, mean God. It's because I want you to come to me. I want you to, to, to see that I am in control, that I am Yahweh, that I am Jehovah who created <clears throat> and that I do have the power to have final say, final judgment. And I, I want to rule, and I want to rule over you because I have the best thing for you. And so I, all of this points to ultimate restoration. Now, there are three things that I think we can learn today uh, from 
Zephaniah, from this whole thing with Manasseh, moving into Josiah. Uh, sometime just go back to, to Kings and Chronicles and read Josiah's reforms. Uh, you know, they found the word of the Lord. They brought it out. They, they worshiped God again and how the entire nation turned uh, at that point under, under Josiah. But the first one, the first teaching for today, I think, is, is the danger of complacency. The danger of complacency. And this isn't the first prophet to bring this up. But Zephaniah says in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Okay? God was hidden. Zephaniah. God is hidden. And it came to the point to where I thought people got to the point to where they were thinking God's not going to do anything. He's not going to come and bless. He's not going to come and punish. Just do whatever you want. And that's how they lived. Uh, I saw a, it wasn't a bumper sticker. I, I forget one of our staff members, because I see it in the parking lot, or used to. I don't know if it's still on there on a car or not, but I remember seeing it that said, um, if you live as if there is no God, you better be right. And that's true. If you're living as if God is not real, as if God does not bless or God does not punish, you better be right because punishment awaits if you're wrong. There's only one outcome to that. And so living as if there is no God, living as if God really doesn't care, isn't doing anything, that's complacent lifestyle. That's just going about our merry way, not giving God much thought. We still may be very religious. We may still go to church every week. We may still read our Bibles. We may still say token prayers before meals and bedtime. But the heart is not there. And we just go through the motions. We become complacent. He said their, their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. Um, Amos was one that spoke of this. Uh, that because they were God's chosen, they felt they were safe from God's wrath. And sometimes we get complacent as the church. Because we are God's church, we just think, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go through life and try to, you know, and wait for Christ's return. I'm just, I'm in, I'm saved, I know my salvation is sure. I'm not going to buck the system. I'm not going to take a stand. I just, I just want to finish out my life. I just, I just want to live a life that is, is good, comfortable, now that I'm in. That's complacent. That's complacent. God says that's sin, and that will be judged. That kind of life of just, just getting by, of just, just going through the motions. Dr. Denyer says, we must not become fat and sloppy as God's people. Put the quote in just because I like that he said fat and sloppy. Um, we must not become fat and sloppy as God's people. We must not assume that we have it all together. We must not become complacent over what we think is God's blessing. Sometimes we think because my life is not wrought with struggle, I must have God's blessing. I must be okay because... I'm not obstacles, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, everything's going well, going smooth, God's just blessing me, look at all the things he's giving me, look at all the opportunities that I'm taking, all the, 
Maybe. Maybe not. Yes, he chastens every Sunday. Those whom I love, I discipline. So there, there is going to be, I mean, we learn from hardship, do we not? That's when we learn. We, we talked, uh, when was uh, Stumbo here? We talked about uh, struggle and suffering and that it's a part of our life, not a part that we should, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a part that we should embrace because it's in those times that, that we rely upon God and that we grow. And so if we're not facing struggle and suffering, maybe there's a reason. We're not growing. We're not causing a stir in the world around us. We're not making a difference. We're not living holy life because holiness and un- or godliness and ungodliness will always clash. Always. They can't coexist. You know the bumper stick sticker coexist? Can't we all just get along? can't happen no we can't we cannot all just get along because we are diametrically opposed on the major issues god is one god we can't coexist and if we find ourselves coexisting then i say we've got an issue in our own life in the way we're living not that we're radicals and we're out beaten that no we're living such good lives that people see your good deeds and praise your God in heaven. They, they want what you have. But it's got to be a difference. So danger of complacency. Um, and then the second thing is the day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. This will be a horrible day. And I want us to see it to begin understanding that it is a horrible day. A dark, dark day. We look to Christ's return as a joyous occasion, and yes, the end product will be. But do you understand what's going to happen on that day? Total destruction. Everything around us that we are, are looking at now, that, that we can see, that we can lay our eyes on, that we are touched, will be destroyed, including people that are of the unbelieving half of society or part of society. It will be a horrible day in that sense. Not horrible for us in that, you know, it it is a joyous occasion that Christ is coming and we should look for it, pray for it, work towards it. But horrible in the sense of the, the mass destruction that's going to take place and the judgment that is going to come. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. That's how bad it's going to be. But for the sake of the elect, God shortened them up. It's not as bad as it could be because of the believers. Um, And then third thing is the remnant is saved. God always has his remnant. God is always at work. Even when God seems silent, distant, and removed, he's working. For 40 or so years in this stretch in Israel's history, it seemed that God was not doing anything. 
but he was. He was still working to bring about his purposes. And that's what we live for. As part of the remnant, we live as part of the remnant. Not complacent, but a true follower. Knowing that God is working, that he's bringing about his purpose, and that he will act on our behalf, on Israel's behalf. And interesting, too, that where did God take Manasseh to get a hold of him? Babylon. (laughs) Took him completely out of the country of Judah. Didn't speak to him there, but drug him out and met him there. How did he get get back to Jerusalem? Um, It says the Lord put him back in. Uh, we don't know exactly how, whether they let him go, uh, you know, slapped him on the wrist, told him not to do it again. I don't know. Um, but he, the Lord put him there and the Lord put him back, which also the life of the king is in the hands of the Lord. I mean, they, God is orchestrating things. God is making it happen. Um, and so, you know, irregardless of what happens in, in our government, in Europe's government, in Asia's government, in Africa's God is in control and he's bringing all things towards his ultimate purpose. And we the remnant, if you will, the believers are to be steadfast and faithful in following him and watching as he works. Uh, One of my favorite verses in the New Testament, Jesus said, my father is always at his work and I too am working. And our job then, Henry Blackaby, the experiencing God, that's one of the verses, his key verses in that whole study, is we just need to see where God is working and then join him. Be alert. Watch where God is working. Who, who, who in my life, where is God working the most? In whose life is God seeming to work? And I need to come alongside. I need to pull into that area. What, what you know, in what theater is, is God working? In what topic is God seeming to move uh, people right now? And we need to get, the church needs to get behind that and move in that direction. Uh, and so, is God alive? Yeah. Uh, the song that's been going through my head, I was telling Greg as I got in here, is the Newsboys song, God's Not Dead, He's Surely Alive, Roaring Like a Lion, Living on the Inside. Uh, God's not dead. Even if at times we don't see Him, we sense, we don't, look, he's working, active, moving, bringing about his purpose. Zephaniah joined forces with Josiah and turned the nation around. It's possible. It's possible. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you've called us. We are the called out ones. We are the sent ones. So, Father, may we not be complacent in our society. May we not just go through the motions for, for fear of, of being mocked or fear of being persecuted or, or fear of not being listened to and rejected. Father, for fear of it just being too hard to work. 
Father, may we never be complacent. May we constantly be, be looking at where you are working. Come alongside and, and have you work through us and in us. That's your desire as your church. Father, we acknowledge that we are your remnant, that, that we are your followers, your believers. And, and you have put us in this place, in this culture, to change the culture, to call people uh, to follow you. And we've seen throughout church history that sometimes the best revivals come in the worst circumstances. So, Father, we acknowledge you working. We acknowledge your sovereignty, your purpose, your your goal. Father, may we live according to your values. That we not mix the world with God. Father, we would not... that we would not mix those values, that we would not uh, commit spiritual adultery and follow foreign gods. Father, strengthen your church. The days ahead are uncertain. For some, that can be scary. For some, that can be exciting. You are going to act. You are going to move. May we sense that and move along with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.